if you can just have a moment to genuinely say, yes, change my mind. I am willing to have my mind changed. Not to say that you will, but if you're willing to have your mind changed, you'd be pretty surprised what kind of information and what kind of voices you'll hear and the perspectives you'll be able to take in. Hello and welcome to the Race Mob Podcast. This is episode number 22. I'm Kevin, entrepreneur, technology and fitness nerd, and the founder of Race Mob. I'm joined by master motivator, founder of Too Legit Fitness, co-chair of the Taji 100, RRCA certified coach, USA track and field certified official, the incomparable Bertrand Newsom. We are so excited to welcome Paul Fukuma to the podcast. Paul's a fourth generation army veteran who brought a friendly little month long 100 mile competition you might know as the Taji 100 stateside. I'll let Bertrand give you the full introduction in a minute, but I wanted to give you a couple of tidbits into what makes this conversation so special. Not only do we get into Paul's background and his experience in Camp Taji, Iraq for the first ever Taji 100 event, but we also talk about the inspiring stories of participants over the years and the reason that Paul's been doing the event year after year, spending hundreds of hours and not taking a cent. We also dig into another topic and try to get Paul's unique perspective. Paul is a public safety officer, which means that he wears three different hats as a police officer, firefighter, and EMT. And as you hopefully recognize, we're currently in a critical moment in time. Political tensions are running high and the world may seem more divided than ever. There's a large focus on systemic racism and even calls to defund the police. So I wanted to get Paul's take and I didn't give him any advance notice, but his honest answers were refreshing and real. And I just appreciate him so much for it. You guys are going to love this conversation. And if you want to improve your health and raise money for an amazing cause, I encourage you all to participate in the Taji 100 this February. You can find all of the information in the show notes at racemob.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by RaceMob, an inclusive community for endurance athletes. If you like our podcast, you'll love our YouTube channel, where we keep you up to date with news from the running world and give you tips that will help you improve your running. Check us out by searching RaceMob on YouTube and subscribe today. Hello, RaceMob family. We're in for a real treat today. We have the one and only Paul Fukuma, a hero amongst heroes, someone who served our country well in the Army, someone who's been a man of the community as a firefighter, as a police officer, as a instructor in the fire academy and police academy, the chairman of the Taji 100 fitness challenge that takes place every year in February. He was part of the event in its inception in 2010 at Camp Taji. And under his leadership, this event has grown exponentially and has raised over $200,000 supporting military families. Paul, is our great honor, our great pleasure to welcome you to the Race Mob family and to share your story. It's an incredible honor to be here. I'm, I must admit, I am a little nervous. It's my very first podcast, so this is all foreign territory to me. <laughs> when you invited me on here, I wasn't quite sure what to expect, so <laughs> this is definitely an interesting experience. <laughs> well, nothing to be nervous about. I mean, I think you know, you're in good hands with Bertrand and me. We just want to get to know you a little bit better and be able to share your story with our audience. As I understand it, you are Bay Area native. Is that right? Did you kind of grow up in the Bay? Yeah, my mother and father settled down in kind of West San Jose. 
And that's where I was raised about six or so. They divorced when I was real young. I don't even have memories of them being together. But it wasn't the greatest neighborhood in San Jose. And it was starting to go downhill pretty fast. So mom recognized that. And so she got me out of there and relocated me to Sunnyvale when I was like the fifth grade or so. And that's all I remember. So I could say I was born and raised Sunnyvale. That's community that I've known ever since. South Bay is what I know. That's about it. And Sunnyvale, I mean, not to to steal anyone's thunder, but that city is very special to you for many reasons. So we'll kind of hold on to that. Let's let's plant those seeds and the good work that you're doing in that beautiful Bay city in Sunnyvale that you call home. Tell us a little bit about the military background. I know that it kind of goes back in your family. Fourth generation, is that right? I'm the fourth generation U.S. Army. My great grandfather on my mother's side was World War One. Both grandfathers World War Two. Both my mother's side and my father's side, which was Japanese, so that has some significance too. My father Vietnam, and then for me Iraq it was pretty interesting. So I didn't really know much about my family's military lineage growing up. I mean, I knew that all of them were in it. I knew all of them served, but it really didn't have much meaning or impact to me until I made the decision to enlist. And which, I don't know if it's interesting or not, but I enlisted completely separate from that motivation. It wasn't like, oh, I want to continue this path. I decided to enlist and it's only then that everything started to come to the surface and I realized how significant the military was in my family. So my father's side is Japanese. My grandparents on that side were put in internment camps uh, during World War II. And during my grandfather's stint in there, he volunteered to translate Japanese code and language for the military. And then once released, he wanted to prove how he loved America and loved the United States. He enlisted in the service just to show no resentment or hard feelings like, no, I believe in this country. And to prove it, I'm going to be a staff sergeant United States Army. Yeah. It's pretty significant. And despite all that, my dad was in college. He kind of easily avoided the draft, but he also said, no, people are serving and I need to do my duty as well. So he voluntarily went down the recruiter and enlisted. He went to Vietnam. He earned two bronze stars while in service as a radio operator for an infantry unit. And then I decided to enlist in 2002, you know, shortly after 9-11 incident. And I wanted to do something pretty significant. So I went in the medical realm and became a combat medic for the army and served four years active. That was a very proud chapter in my life for sure. And got out in 2006, got recalled actually. For those who don't understand military service, you have, let's say you were to enlist right now, you get four years active service. And then there's another four years after that where they kind of still have you on retainer. So at any time they could just say, hey, remember that thing you did a few years back? Yeah, well, come on back in and we watch this play again. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was just sitting in my house or my apartment and my old man, my dad calls me and says, hey, Paul, uh, I just uh, signed for this FedEx package for you from the Department of Defense. You, you did what? <laughs> <laughs> you signed for that? <sighs> so you knew, you knew what it was? And I already knew what it was. I already knew what it was going to be. And sure enough, it was ordered to come back in. So they sunk their teeth into me, pulled me back in and deployed me for a 14-month stint over in Iraq. And that was 2008? Is that right? 2009. 2009. Wow. Yes. So first four years, was that also Iraq? No. no that was all stateside. I worked out in good old Georgia. 
Ah, uh-huh. My first taste of the world outside of the bubble that is the Bay Area. <laughs> it gave me a true taste of how diverse, we'll call it, this country truly can be. Yeah, there's a lot of countries within this country. And if someone has never been outside of California or even especially the Bay Area, it's very, they have their eyes open. They should start traveling and checking out. It's, you, know, you definitely get a new perspective when you spend a long period of time just in a different state let alone a different part of this state. Tell us about that second stint. 2009, so you've been recalled. I guess the first stint, you were stateside, so you didn't really have to go overseas. What was that feeling like of being called overseas? And were you nervous, scared? Well, I wasn't really scared. I I think in my mind, it was always something that I wanted. I think I missed out on, or I didn't do my full duty as military enlistee. It was kind of topsy-turvy. I'd already established a career. I'd already been an officer with San Jose Police for four years at that point. So I was already living my life. Like I thought I'd close that chapter and I'm starting a new one. And then it just kind of turned into a Quentin Tarantino film where I just started jumping back chapters and back and forth. So I had to put everything here on hold, put everything in storage. So it definitely was kind of threw a wrench in the mix for plans, but I didn't fight it. I was actually pretty excited to go to do this. and. While, yes, a deployment sucks, there's just no way else to describe it, but I'm very proud of the experience. I learned an incredible amount. The experience I gained, the knowledge I obtained, I could never, ever have acquired that had I not deployed. I have some lifelong friends that hopefully will stay in touch long into our elder years. So it's been a powerful experience. And of course, ultimately, that series of events has brought us to today and Taju 100 and to legit and race mob and all my friends in here. So I got to say, it was a, a good path to take. Absolutely. We salute and, and, and thank you for your service. And, you know, let's talk about 2010 and Camp Taji, Army Base, and the morale at the time, looking at things through your eyes and how Taji got on your radar. Some of the bigger problems in the deployment is yes, you have the enemy, right? And the bad guys with the bad guys, ladies with guns, but that's a small percentage that the bigger threat is boredom. Boredom is a big problem. Our Sergeant Major, when we got landed in country, he said, when you leave country, you're either going to bench press 500 or weigh 500. (laughs) (laughs) And that's true because you're either going to sit around and eat and be bored and not do anything and have a kind of life. Or you're going to take advantage of this opportunity because you don't have TV. You have very ancient, like Stone Age ancient internet just for emails. So you can't surf the web or do anything. There's no outside distractions other than just your little tiny community here. So you really have an opportunity if you wanted to really maximize on your fitness and health. So morale is kind of low because let's face it, in a lot of these units, you have 18, 19 year olds that have never been away from home and now they're shipped halfway across the world in a combat environment. So they need distraction, right? So a captain within our unit, Carol DePardo, she sees an opportunity to capitalize on the cardio, like this heart health month of February. And she's like, hmm, what's the military's answer for morale? Make everybody run. But really, <laughs> <laughs> what does a 1-5K really do, right? Okay, yeah, we ran. So we had something to do this morning. And now we're back to getting bored again. So she thought the idea, what if we have a month-long challenge, the shortest month of the year, and say, 100 miles, 
let's see if you could knock out 100 miles in the 28 days. Some people were naysayers and they're like, oh, what a great recipe for stress fractures. But ultimately, it was a great experience because we found there's a lot of competitiveness and obviously type A personalities in the military, right? It gave us something to focus on, something to do. We're always keeping track of stuff. It's something to look forward to the next day to try and knock out more things. Health-wise, people were getting great health and they had something to look forward to. It's funny. I was 10 or 11 months into my deployment. I had not come home on R&R yet. Almost everybody else in the unit had, but I was planning to come home for my 30th birthday in March. So I had to leave because it takes quite a few days to, to travel from obviously Iraq back to the States. So I had to leave about a week early. So I was like, ooh, if I do this, I'm going to have to do this in 21 days. <laughs> um, but I did it. Uh, I was very sore afterwards, but I did it. And it was quite an accomplishment. And we were talking about it constantly after it was all said and done. Yeah, so that was in, in Taji, Iraq. That's where we were stationed, which is a little base just northwest of Baghdad, like a 15-minute helicopter ride northwest of Baghdad. Wonderful place. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, the only two good things I liked about Iraq was the sunrise and the sunset. Because <laughs> there, there's so much dust and smoke in the air, it makes the most beautiful oranges and reds I've ever seen. But the 23 hours spread between the two moments. <laughs> yeah, that was not beautiful in any way. Well, tell us a little bit about where did you guys run? Did you guys run inside the base? Were there like pathways and stuff? And what types of shoes? Were you running in boots or did you guys have running shoes? And Yeah, it's kind of hard to picture. I mean, you're in Iraq. It's a theater of war and you're out for a run? <laughs> Well, the FOB is called the FOB, a forward operating base, is actually pretty big. And so there's, if you were to run, you can run pretty much t shirt shorts in the center of it and be free or somewhat free of concern of things being shot over the wall to come get you. But we also had hardened structures. So there was these gyms that had steel reinforced concrete walls all the way around and big steel roofs and stuff. So if mortars and things came over, we'd have some shield of protection. So we'd wear our armor walk all the way over to this gym, kind of dump it off at the door, go in there, lift some weights, kind of treadmill, run around a little bit, get sweaty, but then put our little gear back on and walk off to our living quarters. It was interesting for sure. It's not like going to a gym here, like just, oh, just wear this nice workout <laughs> shirt. No. Mm -mm. And I guess before Taji, were you a runner? Would you consider yourself a runner before then? I wasn't actually. I hated running. Like, passion. <laughs> I was trying to be the more of like, well, my sergeant major said I could lift 500 pounds. I want to be that guy. So I tried really hard to do a bulking upper thing. And I look back and yeah, my brute strength was through the roof, but I was ultra super heavy and had no cardio or no stamina, no endurance. And it wasn't a good feeling for me. But when I started getting into this, I wasn't never been a fast runner, never been crazy in speed. I can't do you know five minute miles or anything like that. But I was able to experience that thing called a runner's high, that little zen moment where yeah, the first two miles suck and everything's tight and everything's stiff and you're like, oh, I got how many more of this, right? But then there's that middle part where you just kind of zone out and you're in your like your happy place 
And that's what was great for me in Tajir doing the 100 is I, for an hour, two hours, I would completely forget where I was. I would just be on a treadmill and I would zone out. I have my little earbuds in, scrap from whatever CDs I can find. And I would completely drift off into fantasy land, completely forget that I was in Iraq, completely forget that I was thousands of miles away from my friends and family, completely forget about all the stresses of the job I was doing over there. And it was my escape. That was my escape. Those two hours of just on a treadmill, just cranking out miles. And then after it was done, I was I was almost like, man, I have to stop now. Uh, <laughs> and then I looked forward to the next day. Yay, I get to go out to my happy place and I go back to the gym. Yeah. So it, it's definitely an interesting thing. We try to have a few half marathons there, but it's wow. challenging when you're restricted to not armor running in a very small environment. How did you guys track your miles there? So Carol decided, well, the only way to track is we would email her all of our miles. So every day she would have, I can't, I wish I knew how many, I wish I could have the original documents, but it must have been a hundred soldiers emailing her every day, their miles and stuff, right? <laughs> and so she would have this big group email and then have to email all of us every day to show us kind of the stats, like the spreadsheet of what's going on, right? But ultimately she always had a big disclaimer, hey, I'm just a doctor. Not a mathematician. So if I mess up, <laughs> your fault. You check on miles, <laughs> which you got to remind me of later because that brings up a pretty funny story about our first year Taji stateside too. Let's bring it back statesides. You were deployed for about fourteen months, you said, and so that was a couple of months after Taji. Yeah. So came back and you know really trying to get back into civilian life it was a lot harder than I thought. You know, I thought I could just jump right into it, but that's not true at all. There's definitely a growing period to try to get back to just the normal flow. Everything from, you know, having to pick out clothes to wear. I mean, I didn't have to pick out what I had to wear every day. It was a uniform, right? And oh, I got to pay bills now and I got to put gas in the car or, or, or something like that. You know, I didn't have to deal with any of that. So it was definitely some growing things. And I miss the camaraderie that is grown through a deployment. You really become tight with people around you. You find that everyone needs to find something in common with each other and really become a really tight-knit community because you're all that you have, right? And you have each other and that's it. So I decided to do a kind of informal Taju 100 stateside, maybe a dozen people from the unit and some other people that I knew that were interested in doing it. And it was literally paper and pen. You know, people would email me or something and I'd write it down and I'd keep a little kind of handwritten spreadsheet and it was kind of fun. You know, it felt good and keep in touch with people. But I thought, you know what? Maybe this could be a little bigger. Let's see where it goes. I bought a godaddy.com website and registered a, a URL. I've never done any of that before. I had no idea what I was doing. And I got some stock images and some cut and paste stuff and put, made a little Facebook page. And before I knew it, I had how many be like uh, 200 people maybe. Wow. And it was completely organic. I didn't advertise or anything. It's just, hey, everybody, check this guy's event out. And 200 people every day, Kevin, would email me their models. <laughs> and I would keep a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet. I have no idea how to do all that mathematics, <laughs> spreadsheets, computer stuff. <laughs> I spent probably two to three hours a day updating spreadsheets and updating the website. Because I would actually get people emailing me angry. 
Paul, I just emailed you 42 seconds ago. Why is it updated? I don't see my miles on there. And- <laughs> I see Bertrand covering his mouth over there. <laughs> Were you one of the... <laughs> and so here I am back in South PD and I'm like working and I'm trying, I'm dealing with like dangerous people and I'm trying to like get criminals into jail and, and I'm constantly getting these text messages. Why aren't you updating the website yet? <laughs> uh, kind of busy right now. Huh? You know, (laughs) but it was overwhelming how many people found it inspiring to them, not just a fun event, motivating and inspiring. And I I thought I never meant it to be an inspirational thing. How interesting that this thing can inspire people. I had one person come and tell me that she suffered from horrific migraines, just this debilitating migraines. We're talking two days a week, just completely incapacitated by migraines, okay? Medicated the whole bit. And she told me that she tried it. She would go out when she could and she got more active and more active and it spawned a new passion in her to be active. And by being active that way, she had reduced all of her headaches and migraines down to once a month or even less. Wow. Uh, Just by instilling an active lifestyle into her that she never thought she could do before. And I thought to myself, all that work, even if it all fails, it helped one person. That meant a lot to me. Bertrand said, hey, let's get together and make this kind of bigger thing. Let's start making some t-shirts. I'm like, oh my gosh, products? We're going to start selling products now? Oh, okay. It's getting pretty serious. All right. Blame Becky on that one. Oh yeah. I'll blame <laughs> Becky on that yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> and so we started doing that and it really snowballed. Uh, we started realizing we're getting bigger and bigger. So we started looking at the legalities of it, became 501 nonprofit. We started trying to tie ourselves with bigger organizations. Now, what's interesting about Taji is this. I have no idea how we survived this long because those first few years when we tried to raise money for military charities, I don't want to cuss on your program, but it was a garbage show. All right. We had to have people register with us. You had to register with an online tracking service, a different kind of running site. And then you had to register with the charity to donate. So we had to go to three different websites just to participate in all this matter. And yet somehow we had people continuing to return. And Bertrand said to me, Paul, that should tell you how significant this event is. If people are willing to go through and jump through all those hoops and go through this huge process just to take part in this, that should tell you how significant this is and how much of an impact you're really having on people. And I never thought about it like that. It made a lot of sense. We continued to grow and we partnered up with a military charity, and we thought we were doing good. They end up getting in some hot water for some mismanagement of funds. So we had to kind of distance ourselves from them. And then uh, we found RWB, Team Red, White, and Blue. And I don't think we could have found a better fit for our mission. And for those who don't know about Team Red, White, and Blue, let me give a little quick plug to them. They take military service members who are coming out of the service and try to assimilate them and teach them how to be part of society again, which I can tell you from personal experience is a much needed program, right? We're talking leadership trainings and camps, counseling services, the the gamut, whatever someone may need to try to come back to civilian world, they provide it. And then they do it in an athletic media. Like, hey, let's go off for a run. Let's go off for an athletic event. And while we're doing it, let's talk. Let's have a chat and see what we can do to get you on the right path. You know, that's huge. That's just perfectly in line with who we are, where we've been, where we came from and what we want to do. They're very open with their funds. They're very transparent. And so their honesty and integrity is through the roof. Uh, I can't speak higher about them in any way. 
So I feel very honored and blessed that they'd be willing to partner up with us and support us in our efforts to help support them. And in turn, trying to give back to the thousands of uh, women and men who are currently serving and who have served to try to get back to their families and be a part of society again. That's incredible. Yeah. And I know I see RWB on the course all over the place. I know I've met a couple of them uh, definitely during my marathons. I'm always falling behind. I think like Scott Cruishanks up here in uh, San Francisco. And yeah. <laughs> and I mean, they always have such a big crew. I seem to remember a lot of them participated in Taji kind of in some of those early years. Is that kind of how you guys met? It is. It is. Uh, several of their members are, became part of Taji and they recognized how awesome this was. And when we started looking for a new chair, they seized the opportunity to make the introduction. And that really just set a wildfire chain of events. They, Red, White, and Blue has reached out to all their chapters nationwide, and we've grown exponentially. I mean, I think we hit, how many be 6,000 or so people worldwide, not countrywide, worldwide. And just this last year, we cumulatively ran enough miles to go to the moon and back in the 28 days. I mean, that's, that's staggering. That is absolutely staggering. And we were able to raise enough money in those 28 days to write them a check for $74,000. Oh, wow. That's after all the overhead, all the fees and tax, everything. Here's a check for $74,000 and change. That's more than many people make an entire year, and we just did it in a month. Are you enjoying the show? Help us out by sharing the podcast. You can win some cool prizes like headbands, wristbands, training programs, shoutouts, and more. Especially if you're part of an existing running group, online community, or have friends that you think will enjoy the show. Get your personal referral link at racemob.com slash referral. I want to go back and, and figure out how you guys met. There's got to be a story here. I mean, Bertrand, the first time I ever met you, you told me about Taji 100. It wasn't about too legit. It was, hey, there's this thing, Taji, that comes up in February that I want to support, helping these guys out, helping this charity. And that was back in July of 2013 that we first met. And February of that next year, I definitely participated in Taji because, I mean, what an incredible event, what an incredible experience altogether. And yeah, I definitely had never even thought about running 100 miles in a month, let alone the, the smallest month of the entire year. So tell me about the story. How did you guys meet? Through Taji. It was that very first uh, event where we had the GoDaddy.com website. Here comes Bertrand out of left field. Just an overwhelming force of energy and motivation. I got to tell you, Bertrand's energy is contagious. I mean, you, you can't be around him and not also be motivated and pumped up and just inspired. So here I am, just some guy in my little apartment in San Jose getting messages from a guy named Bertrand, and I'm getting pumped up like, wow, this guy is cool. He's getting me all jacked up and thinking this is a cool event. And he's giving me this great vision of what this event could be. And he's put me in connections with Becky Hernandez and some other great folks uh, through the event. You know, to be honest, yeah, I can't remember when we first actually met up. I believe uh, it was certainly, you're correct, 2012. And for our listeners, that event, I mean, I had started running a year earlier, but I fell in love with running because of Taji 100. I fell in love with the camaraderie even more so of the running community because of Taj 100. The mission spoke to me personally because my father too served in the military. My father too served in the army. 
So every foot that I put in front of myself, every mile that I logged, it was with a purpose, honoring his time, his service, and all the other service men and women for our great country. And meeting Paul, it may have been in San Francisco at the wrap-up event at the hotel I was managing at the time. I uh, may have met yeah, you and Wendy. Granted, we had interacted on in multiple occasions. We also had Jim Cordoba as part of that uh, initial Taiju 100 kind of semi-admin group, Becky, of course, and then in later years, Nando Gonzalez. But meeting you and Wendy and seeing that when you articulate, hey, B, this is just a small, I'm doing all this. I'm blogging all those entries and knowing that you are a law enforcement professional and still making time to support and participate, then just hats off to you, man. Fantastic. And you're one of my closest friends. And again, it is your vision, you taking this wonderful challenge and bring it at home stateside and what it's grown into and how many people's impacted from a health and wellness perspective, self-confidence. People are living longer and happier because you wanted to shoulder that responsibility in facilitating this challenge. And we did have some tough times. I can share with our listeners, you probably don't want me to, this gentleman, this dude came out of pocket. We were in the red for a couple of years. He came out of his own pocket to subsidize and keep this event alive before we caught some traction. And man, you, I mean, it, I cannot thank you enough. The Taju 100 participants cannot thank you enough. You and your wonderful family, your significant other, Wendy, has certainly contributed so much. Yeah, she, monstrous force behind this whole thing. When we first met, we weren't even married. I think we were just engaged at that time. And I'm just thinking about how young and wrinkle-free and gray-free we were at that time. <laughs> Kid-free. Yeah. So definitely had a lot more sleep. Didn't have any of these back then. Right? <laughs> and, oh, and that was only, what, seven years ago or less than that or a little more than that, eight years or so ago. Yeah, we had some tough times. Financially, I, I had scraped together some money to try to keep this thing afloat because we were in the red. Luckily, it's just started getting more traction and we started bringing in more positive people, more motivated people. And to kind of just share something with you, a little personal perspective here. Every year into Taji, where I could get into it, I go, oh, this is so much work. I don't want to do this anymore. I want this to be the last year. I want to be done with this. I'm, I'm, I'm so done with this. And I literally, I, I kid you not, Kevin, I, I lose all motivation. I go to zero. But I do this and I continue for a very selfish reason. And that's for the stories that come out of it from participants. Every year, without fail, I'll have at least a handful uh, uh, people write to me and talk to me, and their stories are so humbling, so impactful to me, it motivates me and inspires me. So I do this selfishly to motivate myself. I'm putting this out there, looking for other people to hear their stories, to give passion and motivation to me. For example, last year in 2020, I had a gentleman write to me, and he said, Paul, I've made some very poor life decisions. I am grossly overweight. I, I am, by definition, morbidly obese. And cumulatively, like in multiple attempts throughout one day, I can barely make one mile. That's significant. I mean, let's, let's think about that. That's saying he's multiple attempts, not just one or two, but three or more attempts to go out and move. And cumulatively, his limit is one mile. And that, that should give you a, a perception of, of how bad of health he has taken, or the journey he's taken. And he trained up for the event. He's like, I'm going to use this as an opportunity. I'm going to make a decision and I'm going to use your event as an opportunity to try to get my life back on track. And by the end of it, the month, he was doing two or three miles at a time, going from you know a third of a mile to three miles. I mean, if I said, hey, hey, Bertrand, I got a one month program for you. 
And by the end of that month, I'm going to give you a 100 times more endurance distance capability for free, right? That's what he did. He, he did 100 times better. And he told me he lost 30-something pounds in January, February, and he's continuing to move. And I thought every morning when I would get up in a cold February morning, I'm like, oh, the bed's so warm. I don't want to get in bed. A snooze button is just right there. All I got to do is touch you and you'll go away. Go away, alarm. Go away. I thought about this gentleman. He is not an exaggeration, not metaphorically. He is literally fighting for his life. If he can roll out of bed and endure and have the pride, the motivation to take himself out there and knock out a quarter mile, a half mile at a time, what excuse do I have to not do the same? That's inspiring. That is motivating. And that is, it's motivating to me to think that something that we created has helped him or given him an, an out or an ability to help himself, actually. That's what it's done. It's, we haven't helped him. We have given him the ability to help himself, for him to help himself. I got to tell you, while Bertrand in the first event and a lot of our guys, they crushed these miles. And I go, oh my God, how can they do How can this guy run 100 miles in 23, 23 hours like last year? And Bertrand goes 4,000 miles in, in 28 days. It's incredible, right? <laughs> it's like he, he's on like a segue this entire time. I don't know what he's doing. Wait, wait, are you <laughs> literally 4,000 miles in no. 2018? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Fake news. In this case, really fake news. But was it, uh, did you do 100 miles in 23 hours? Did you want it? We've had some people in 2020. Yeah, wow. I have yeah. not. Wow. I think my bet maybe four days, four and a half days for me. Um, Still. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> slacking. Slacking. Oh, slack. yeah, yeah. yeah. Come on, slacker. Yeah. Keep up here. Totally <laughs> go. We got to take Kevin. Their physical capabilities demand respect. And I've always said to everybody, they demand respect. And I, I'm always in awe of it. But I'm sorry, B, but those stories aren't the ones that motivate me. They're not the ones that will make me get out of bed and crush it. Those aren't the ones that inspire me. The ones that inspire me are the guys that can barely do this Taji 60, but they're trying every day. It's those people out there who haven't done anything, and now they're making a commitment, made a change. Those are the inspirational stories. Those are the ones I live for and I yearn for every year. And every year without fail, they have come in and not just the same new people every year. So yeah, I, I do this every year for very selfish reasons, and that's to wait for those stories to come in to motivate me so that I can get my butt out of bed and do something productive. Well said. And as much as we talk about you bringing this event stateside, you know, because you facilitated the fulfillment, meaning sending out all of the Tashi swag the last couple of years, you were sending a lot of uh, gear and merch out to people that are serving right now internationally at base across the world. So, if there, you know, any examples that you may want to share? Last year was unprecedented. I think we had almost 200 people actively deployed so in a theater of war, serving our country in the military who participated in Taj 100. That's incredible. It's like people actually in Taj Iraq. I mean, Taji actually, that FOB got closed. We surrendered it and gave it over to the Iraqi police. And then for some reason, politics aside, they decided to reacquire it and make it US military again. And some service members in Taji decided, hey, we're already here. That's pretty cool. Let's, let's give it a go. We had an entire unit from 160th SOAR, that Special Operations Aviation Regiment. I mean, they're the guys, like you see Black Hawk Down, those, they're the guys that flew those helicopters and, and all that kind of stuff. So people make movies about their job, all right? And they're participating in Taj 100. So the reaches of this event 
have gone beyond my wildest dreams or fathoms. It's, it's incredible. And I believe, and I don't believe I know without a doubt, defined a new level of a virtual event. We've been doing it, you know, for about a decade now. I mean, and the mission is what speaks to everybody. The mission is so clear and profound. It is bigger than your miles. You're doing it for a greater cause. And the unique thing about it is you don't have to actually donate. You can just participate because it, at its inception, it was about cardio health and mental health. And for people to say, you know what, I want to pay it forward and come out of pocket and donate. Uh, that's just all bonus. And it's the event that keeps on giving. And I mean, a virtual event that is much different than the, the prevalent amount of virtual events that are happening right now because of the mission and the history of it. This definitely has a unique flavor, right? Because because you can easily participate in this event absolutely free because that's our mission. It's just to try to find a way to inspire Americans to become a more active, healthy life. But if you have the ability and you want some cool swag and, the, and you want to be part of the bigger picture, then you can pay to participate and, and be a part of that huge donation check component. So yeah, it's uh, on a lot of events, there's a place, right? We try to be number one or number two. No, this is your, it's a challenge. You're, you're going against yourself. Can, what can you accomplish in your day? So that's, I think that's another unique flavor that we have versus a lot of other virtual events out there. Nearly a quarter million raised for Medicare charities. And, you know, there was a point where we thought $5,000, $10,000, $15,000. And we're looking in the future on the horizon, potentially a six-figure check because of the cumulative efforts of so many wonderful people spreading the word organically. We don't do a lot of advertising. No, we do not. We don't. We pay for no advertising. None. Uh, everything's completely organic. Hey, sister-in-law, I did this really cool thing. You should be interested in this year. And then it just spreads. Yeah, actually, a new officer. So I, I work for the city of Sunnyvale in California now, not longer San Jose. Uh, a newer officer came in and she was sitting on our briefing table. And I decided, well, it's come up time for Taji. Maybe I could plug this to my my team. So I talk about it. And she goes, Taji 100, you're part of that? I've been doing that for the last three years. And I had never met her before. Right? It's like, oh, pretty cool. Yeah, actually, I am part of it. Let me tell you some more. <laughs> before we, we get too far off subject, I do want to know about the swag. Um, uh, there's some behind the scenes. I know you guys are working behind the scenes on some of this stuff. So if people do want to donate, what is the suggested don donation amount to get swag and what, what type of swag is available for this upcoming 2021? Well, we sell a packet. We, we just take a one flat fee uh, that includes a shirt, uh, a race medal, like a, a race bib and some other nice little trick things like some stick decals and stuff. Also some nice gifts from Team Red, White and Blue, which they'll be contributing to help support this. But $25 of that is earmarked just as a donation. Like not $25 minus some fees, I guess 25 bucks goes to RWB, right? So that's pretty significant. We take very little cut. Our cut is about 10 bucks out of a $70, $70 packet. So we, we really don't make much money at all on this and everything just goes right into next year's event. We take zero. I get paid zero for this event. Bertrand takes not a single penny for this event. No one on the staff gets paid anything. We we do this 100% labor of love, hours and hours and hours a day committed to this completely on the mission, and that's to help others. So when I tell people that, and they kind of write to us, I haven't gotten my stuff right away. They expect Amazon. Kind of <laughs> and we remind them, hi, I am literally working in my kitchen 
packaging your stuff and my six-year-old is helping me, it's, they get very humbled. A lot of people are like, oh, we had, we had no idea. It was so grassroots. We thought we were like a big company. No, no, we're not. My garage has two pallets and 2,600 pounds of race metals sitting in there. And yeah, that, welcome to my house. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Well, I do want to learn a little bit more. I mean, we've, we've hinted at nuggets of it, but you know, you came back and you rejoined the police force, but then you also kind of have a, a different role that I, I'd not heard before. I came back from Iraq and I went back to San Jose Police. And then in 2013, I lateraled over to Sunnyvale Department of Public Safety. And they're a very unique entity. So everyone there is a police officer, a firefighter, and an AMT simultaneously. So every police officer you see there is a firefighter. And every firefighter you see there is a police officer. And every time you see them, they're all EMTs. So I can just put my hat on and change whatever I need to do to solve whatever emergency may present itself. When I work patrol, I have my firefighter stuff in the trunk of the car. If a house caught on fire, I drive up, strip down on my chonies right there in the middle of the street, put on my fire gear, fight the fire, wow. save the cat in a tree or whatever it may be, take it off, put my patrol gear back on and go out and write a speeding ticket or something. And then vice versa, if I'm on fireside and heaven or DAD forbid something heinous was to happen, we have the tools as a fire rig, we can go help with that. Meanwhile, we're all responding to medicals. I, and the patrol car, I would respond to heart attacks all the time because we can get there really fast. We have AEDs in all the patrol cars, so we can render aid much faster than getting there in a fire rig. So it's definitely a unique system. I love how it works. I love that I can show up to any house. Because when I first started in public service, a very senior sergeant would tell me, Paul, the call you get is never the call you got. Meaning you'll get there and you think it's called, oh, now one, there's a noise complaint next door. You get there and it's actually a baby having a medical emergency. Oh, it's not a med- it's not a noise complaint. It's not a law enforcement matter. This is a medical call. Well, in a traditional agency, I would say that, okay, uh, hey, dispatch, send me fire and EMS. And then we have to sit there and wait for them to show up. But here in Sunnyvale, I am the EMS. No problem. Let me pull my bag out of my car and start helping you and your family and while we can wait for an ambulance to show up and more medical personnel. So um, you can get help right there on the spot. I, I love the system. I, I'm a tr- I drink the Kool-Aid of it being a phenomenal program. It's been in place since the 1950s. I mean, it's, it's definitely got it worked out well. And Paul, one thing that I think you may have left out with the hats, the mini hats that you wear, you've also done some CSI work, correct? Yes, I was a crime scene investigator for Sunnyvale. Wow. And now I'm currently an arson investigator for Sunnyvale. And then I teach EMS at the San Jose Police Academy. I'm a tactical medic for our Sunnyvale SWAT team. I teach at the Sunnyvale Fire Academy, police FT, field training officer. So I would sit in the car and I'd have a brand new recruit behind the wheel and I'd show her or him around the town and train them up to be an officer. And now I'm a fire field training officer. So I'm doing that. I've taught tactical medicine to numerous other law enforcement agencies throughout the Bay Area, like Alameda County Sheriff's Office and CHP, San Jose, Campbell, all that. So I've definitely found a passion for teaching. Teaching and learning. What is that? We're in the midst of the pandemic. Will you just outline the, the multiple jobs, capacities you manage through? Beautiful family, wife, three kids, but your commitment to continue your education. Why don't you share with our listeners what you accomplished this year in addition? When I started this whole profession, I only had my associate's degree. That's it. I had my little AS degree and that was it. 
And then uh, it came a time like, you know what? I'm tired of always having that box not checked of finishing my college degree. You know, I, I was always lingering. I always wanted to get done, but just like all of us in the world, oh, I never have enough time. But, you know, I always preach with Taji. It, it's not about ha- not having enough time. It's about what is more important in your 86,400 seconds of the day. You know, if, if something's more important to you, you will devote a chunk of that time to what's important, right? Is it an hour of watching a soap opera or is it an hour of learning a new language, whatever it may be, right? So over the last two years, completed my bachelor's and my master's degree. So I got both in a two-year span. That's fantastic. <laughs> in addition to Taji, in addition to managing and overseeing the chairman of hundreds of thousands of dollars going to a military charity, paying it forward, paying it back, honoring our nation's heroes and families. Yeah, it, I'm very proud of it. It's a, definitely a big box checked on my to-do list, my bucket list. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of that, yeah. Well, uh, I guess I I have to ask just because, you know, you are a public safety officer. Do you have any take on the recent, you know, the social unrest? There's been calls to defund police and you have kind of an interesting role that's not really just police. It's kind of, you know, uh, you've had a multitude of trainings for, you know, handling different types of situations and whatnot. I don't, I, I'm just kind of curious if you have takes on, on what's going on. I found in my profession, communication is the key to being a successful police officer. You got to learn how to talk in different languages, even though it's all English, they're different languages, right? And the fastest way to piss somebody off is to deny them a voice. Fastest way to get someone to shut down, to completely tip over the edge is to not allow them to speak. And current climate, there's polarizing sides. And both sides are very passionate about their perspective. And they're so passionate about sharing their perspective, they're not stopping to listen to the other one's perspective. So it becomes a shouting match. And it just gotten to the point where both sides are just exploding. And no one's listening. And unfortunately, with anything in society, we see something we don't like and we go to extremes. We try to find the extreme solution to something. I got a crack in my floor. I might as well tear the house down and build a whole new house. No, no, we don't need to do that. Okay. You know, there was Obama's 21st century policing, procedural justice. That's a pretty big topic in law enforcement. And, you know, and a lot of people, when that came out, a lot of people were very anti it. They were very resistive to it. And teaching at the police academy, I have the opportunity to talk with young recruits coming in from all over the country. And this young African American man from Southern. From the South, all right, from East South, he came up to me and he told me, Paul, that policies and procedures, that, that's not meant for this area, for the Bay Area. What do, what do you mean? That's already happening here. Uh, I've, grew, I've been living here for quite a few years. And I could tell you what that policy stuff is written for is not here. This agency's already been doing that for a long time. This stuff is written for agencies out in the middle of nowhere that don't have the same training standards, that don't have the oversight that the Bay Area has. A lot of people in the Bay Area don't recognize or under- appreciate what we have here, especially in comparison to other parts of the country. You know, there's parts of this country that don't have police academies. It's just like, hey, you want a job? Cool. Let's go out here. Here's all your stuff. I'm going to take you out to the street and show you how to do this. Uh, excuse me? You don't have state oversight. You don't have state standards. In California, there's a thing called California Post. That's California Peace Officers Standards for Training. And they oversee all of law enforcement training in the entire state of California. 
So every law enforcement car has to meet a bare minimum standard. And it's about six months of 40 hour weeks training and just a plethora of topics, right? So it's very, very regulated. So when I see these complaints that we don't hold, hold a standard, I'm going to tell you right now, there are absolutely bad apples in the profession, 100%. Anyone tells you that there's not a bad police officer out there, I'm going to tell you right now, that's a very stubborn and ignorant and not uh, open to world around them. That, that's just not true. There's a bad person in every single job. There's bad doctors, there's bad teachers, there's bad lawyers. The sad part is they're a very small percentage, especially of these departments in this area, and they get all of the spotlight. And unfortunately, they highly represent the entire profession. My work patrol, I get called racist all the time by every race. Uh, I've been accused of everything and it wears on you. It really does. Uh, it's, it hurts. I could tell you all I'm trying to do in this world is help people. And when I'm constantly being bombarded as a racist or a bad person nonstop, it, 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 that weight builds up pretty deep. And I'm telling you right now, to all my colleagues out there, they're, it's exhausting especially when we got into this work, just trying to help and make things better, right? This current climate, I can tell you right now, it's been eye-opening for me. I've definitely gained some new perspective. I have sat down and talked with many of my friends who are either African-American or married to an interracial couple or have family in law enforcement and tried really hard, just talk to me. I'm not going to give you my perspective. I just want to hear yours. Right? I want to hear your voice. I want to hear what your stories are. And I was dumbfounded. I was taken back at how many negative interactions or racially motivated incidents have happened in my friends' lives. I never knew, right? So when I hear people say there's no racism in the country, it's like, well, I trust my close friend. He or she is not going to lie to me. And if they're telling me A and B happened to them, I'm going to tell you that, yeah. It's out there. I mean, I could go on for probably another two hours on this right here, but I can tell you, I don't know how we fix this. I don't know how we can do this on the grand scale. I think this is going to have to become solved on many smaller scales and then trying to unify. And that kind of brings me to what I want to talk about, Taji, is that this year we've really focused on unity, both in our graphics, both in our design and our presentation, because I want the world to see, not just in theory, not just in the hypothesis, but in proven that we can come together of every race, every gender, every sexual orientation, every political affiliation, every age, every demographic, every social economic situation, we can come together under a common good of three colors. That's red, white, and blue combined. And we've proven it in Taji. You look at our, our membership base and it's everything. There are people a part of our things that are polar opposite in political backgrounds, polar opposite in every fathom of divisiveness in this country. But yet, even with those, we can still come together under the common good of trying to help support our fighting women and men in the service and unifying under health and fitness. It is possible. I'm not saying it's easy, but I can tell you right now, we have proven that it is possible. And that's what we're really trying to focus on this year for this year's event. And with that, Paul, you know, we really appreciate your leadership, even with the executive board for Taji is a very diverse group in their own. I mean, from a race perspective, you get a lot of different feedback, male, female, civilians, people who've served. And again, but it's the tone that you set and you the emphasis on communication. I mean, that's the only way things are going to get better in this country is the ability to communicate. And in some cases, not to 
feel that you always have to make your agenda the priority just to be able to listen, to communicate and listen. It's that simple, but it also it is that hard because there's a lot of a lot of pain, a lot of mistrust in some circles. And my father served in the army and he was also a law enforcement officer. So and I'm a minority male. So I've I've seen all of it. Um, but I still believe that our better days are ahead of us. I truly do. And I feel that Taji gives us all one mission to focus on. It filters out a lot of the life noise where we can all come together under a common cause. And we see examples like that, that it's good for us overall. And I cannot wait because registration's on the horizon. Um, looking at Veterans Day, hopefully we'll be able to share some sneak peeks of the swag as the podcast drops for the public officially. So stay tuned for that, peeps. Great metal, super cool shirt, and some other additional swag items, giving the Race Mob viewers and listeners some inside scoop. And we just really appreciate you, the man, and all of your service. Kevin and I are very, very grateful for your time. And we look forward to Taji 2021. Knock on wood, it's going to be the best year yet coming off of 2020, which for so many reasons was very tough worldwide, domestically because of the, the pandemic. But we've had our best year and there are always silver linings that are happening around us when we just take the time to look and listen. So thank you for all the goodness that uh, this event and you under your leadership are putting out there. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm very humbled to have men such as yourself take part in this. And, and I feel blessed to have you in part of my life as a friend and to include me in your life as a friend. The people I've met along the way, I can tell you, Kevin, I can tell you right now, that everybody listening, if this event failed right now, if this whole thing shut down right now and we just threw everything away and called it quits, I would say it as an absolute 100% success because of Bertrand and the other people that I've met. They have, personally, they have made my life better. They've made me a better person, a better man, uh, and therefore translate to a better husband and father. So I truly appreciate what I've gained from this event. It may not have been the main focus, but it's definitely brought in positivity. And yeah, I, I guess my parting words to the to the listeners out there for all the unrest that's happening, it's just, if you can just take a breath and get rid of the tunnel vision, open your ears, if you can just have a moment to genuinely say, yes, change my mind. I am willing to have my mind changed. Uh, not to say that you will, but if you're willing to have your mind changed, you'd be pretty surprised uh, what kind of information and what kind of voices you'll hear and the perspectives you'll be able to take in. I, I can tell you in the last 14 years of this job, I am not the same man. I have not the same perspectives. And that's all because I've been able to sit down and listen to other people and hear their story and genuinely enter a conversation with, yes, Bertrand, change my mind. I want, I am, I want, if you don't change my mind, I'll actually be disappointed. So I want you to. So please talk to me. It's hard to do, but if, you, if you're listening, if you can do that, you'd be very surprised in a good way. And I think when we, we have you back in the future, Paul, we won't be referring to you as just chairman. I think it'll be chief chief of city of... Not going to happen. <laughs> no, <laughs> that is huge politics game. And nothing to do with it. <laughs> well, Paul, I mean, I just want to say thank you so much, not only for your service to the country, your service as a public figure to our community, and for bringing Taji to so many people and bringing that, that sense of mission and sense of community to such a wide audience. Just can't tell you how thankful we all are to get to know you, to get to know your story, to get to know more about Taji. And um, 
We're so appreciative of everything that you've done and everything that you continue to do. So thank you again. And we are, we'll definitely be there to support you this year and going forward. Absolutely. We love it. Thank you so much. I'm overwhelmed by the support. and It truly means a lot to me. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Race Mob Podcast. Check out all of the show notes or find a running buddy online at racemob.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on moving.